0: Today's a different kind of day, so we're taking the offering up at a slightly different time. And tonight, we want to invite you back to come and be a part of our family Christmas. As a church family, we're going to come together tonight at 5 o'clock. Uh, we're going to have a live nativity. I'm going to read the chronological Christmas story. Uh, we'll have hot chocolate and all those types of things. But we want you to come uh, so that we can come back together and really just enjoy our family time uh, as a church family. Today, if you notice, maybe you're visiting with us. This is an abnormally uh, beautiful crowd to me um, because we have so many children in here. And so if you're a child in here, I just want to say thank you. I want to tell you that I love you and that as your pastor, it is a joy. And I want you to know that I don't see myself as an adult pastor and not your kid, the kid's pastor. That we as your pastoral staff, me as lead pastor, I want you to hear me say that I love you. And if you ever need anything, if you ever need somebody to talk to, if you ever need somebody to call, you call me. It's not, it doesn't matter that you're young. I'll take your call and we will talk. And adults, it's okay if today's a little more fidgety than normal. That doesn't bother me. All right? Can we just get that out in the air? That's okay with me. To God be the glory that there's a little more noise in the sanctuary. To God be the glory that we have a church bustling with young children and babies and parents. To God be the glory. So let's let's just embrace that together this morning. If you were the Almighty, if you were God himself, how would you have written the story of redemption? How would you have written the story of rescue? Perhaps you would have written it as the Muslims have written it. Where you have to abide by a certain law well enough. Abide in the five pillars of Islam faithfully enough. Hoping that you will have done more good in your life than bad in your life. So that, that God will find, somehow show pleasure and invite you in. Perhaps you would would write redemption that way, that people are never really able to know that they kind of live in this, this world of flux, trying somehow to overcome their bad by doing a lot of good. Perhaps you would write redemption as you coming with an angel army in all of your glory and all of your splendor to strike down all of the enemies in the presence of people so that But people would immediately bow in the rapture of that moment. Most likely, you wouldn't have written to come at all. Most likely, if you were the Almighty, you would be content to be in the midst of glory, surrounded by myriads and myriads of created beings, all proclaiming simultaneously and in unison your glory that you and you alone are worthy however it is that you would write the story of redemption, were you the Almighty, I am certain that if you were to write the story, it would not include your humiliation. I'm certain that it would not include your sorrow. I'm certain that it would not include your pain. And it certainly would not include your death. If you were Almighty God... Would you write the story to have your son born into a manger of hay? If you were almighty God, would you have your son born into a city unable to receive him? No. If you were God, the story would look differently. The story that we read this morning together is a story incapable of being written by human hands. The story that we read this morning is far too far-fetched, far too spectacular, far too grandiose in all of its splendor to have been imagined by a human mind. In fact, practically every other world religion or worldview system has almost everything in common except for the one in which God becomes a baby. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. I imagine, knowing my crowd this morning, that most of you have heard this great story a number of times. And it's easy to come and to hear this story and to glaze over and to roll your eyes being familiar with it. But I caution you this morning, this is not a story that you can become over-familiar with. This is not a story in which you can become too familiar. This is a story which beholds in it the greatest and grandest truths in all of cosmic history. And so in a world in which our attention spans have been cut down by Facebook, I challenge you to hang on the words of the text. Stand with me as we read God's word together this morning. Luke chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. When we come to our text this morning, what I want us to see and what I believe that we see are three proofs that are given to us in understanding what Advent is all about. The first thing that I think we see proven to us in Luke chapter 2 is we see proven to us the sovereignty of God. Jesus' advent proves the sovereignty of God. Now, I use that word a lot, and I want to make sure that you understand what I mean when I say the word sovereignty. When I think about the word sovereignty, I'm thinking about a king in totalitarian control over a nation. And so when we talk about God being in control, we are talking about God having totalitarian authority over all of the cosmos. I apologize for my voice. Apparently, it's just going to check out today. We're just going to work through it, though. So when we think about God in being sovereign, we think about God doing as He pleases, what He pleases, the way He pleases to do it, with no one able to thwart Him, with no one able to slow Him, with no one able to change His mind or to stop Him. The first way that we see God's sovereignty in our text is that we see that Jesus' advent proves to us that God is sovereign over history. Jesus' advent proves to us that God is sovereign over history. The book of Luke is really a remarkable book. Luke was not an eyewitness to the things that we're reading here. Do you realize that? Luke didn't know these things because he was there. No, the only way that Luke obtained the knowledge that he had was through research, painstaking, painstaking, passion-driven research. That what Luke desired to do is Luke desired to know the truth himself so that then he could spread the truth and teach the truth. So think about the man that we're talking about here. The historicity of Jesus is incredibly important to him. It's incredibly important to him. Luke very likely interviewed Mary. Can you imagine this? Luke sitting at the table with the mother of Jesus Grieving over the loss of her son and saying, Mary, tell me how it happened. Tell me how it happened. Mary, through tears, sometimes smiling, sometimes weeping, telling every moment of the angel coming and talking to him, every moment of the reaction of Joseph, every moment of all the fear and anxiety and joy and excitement that she was just feeling simultaneously, imagine that he probably sat down and interviewed the brothers of Jesus. Tell me, tell me what you've heard. Tell me what you know. Tell me what, what does your mom said? Tell me the stories. He had went and he had talked to people that knew. He had talked to people that had been there. He had talked to the apostles that certainly had heard the accounts from Jesus himself. He had done the work. And so he gives us in great detail the, t- in the text this morning, doesn't he? He tells us Caesar Augustus was ruling Rome. He tells us that Quirinius is the ruler of Syria at the time. He tells us that there was a census going on. And so Joseph had to take his pregnant virgin betrothed, uh, uh, betrothed uh, fiance across a 90 mile journey. Three days at least to Bethlehem. He tells us that when Jesus gets there there's no place in the, in the inn yet The time has come, and we know what time he's... He tells us that Jesus is swaddled in cloths. Can't you just imagine Mary giving him this account? That she beheld for the first time the face of the Son of God. And she did the only thing that a mother knows to do. She wrapped him. She made him warm. She nurtured him. And Luke tells us she placed him in a manger, a feeding trough filled with hay. No, Luke is daring us to go and check him out. Luke is daring us to go and check the details for ourselves. Luke is saying, I've done the research. You go and do it for yourself. You go and find out that this is true. You go and and see if it is not as I have reported to you. See, one of the things that Luke discovered as he did the research about Jesus, as he read about Jesus and studied about Jesus and interviewed others about Jesus, one of the things that must have struck Luke and apparently struck Matthew, as you can read his account, was that everything about Jesus was just as God said it would be. Jesus was born in Bethlehem just like Micah 5-2 said he would be born. Jesus was born to a uh, a virgin just like Isaiah chapter 7 said that he would be born. Jesus was born in the line of David, which myriads of texts tell us in the Old Covenant and the Old Testament. That when they find Jesus, and when they think of Jesus, and when they write of Jesus, Jesus is just as they said he would be. You see, if you find the most skeptical scholar, you find the most skeptical atheist, the people that want to prove that the church is wrong, they have to give you this. You may deny the deity of Jesus, but you cannot deny the birth of Jesus, and you cannot deny the existence of Jesus, and you cannot deny that in his birth he was strikingly uncannily similar ...to the Messiah the Jews had long awaited. The most skeptical person has to give you that. But what I want you to understand this morning, brothers and sisters... ...is that when we see now that God is in control of history... That God tells how it will be before 500 years before and 600 years before and 1,000 years before. Because God had planned it before the foundations of the earth. That God from the beginning declared the end. That the God of history will define the future. And So what that means for us this morning is that just as historical as Jesus' first advent was, his second advent will be. Just as historically true, just as historically accurate, just as real as Jesus' first coming, so will be his second coming. This morning I am understanding that there are many of you that are wondering about the future. You're fearful of the future. You are worried about the future. You're worried about who your children will become. You're worried about who you will marry and where you will go. You're worried about what diseases might be ahead of you, what pain might be lingering. You're worried if you're going to have enough money to make it to the end of life. You're worried if something's going to blindside you and you don't really know what's happening. You're, You're worried about what the future holds. Brothers and sisters, God is sovereign over the future. God is sovereign over history. Jesus' advent proves to us that in tomorrow we have nothing to fear. Don't be afraid of tomorrow, brothers and sisters. God is already there. God has already written the day. God is still good. But not only do we see Jesus' sovereign, or Jesus' advent as proving to us God's sovereignty over history, but Jesus' advent proves to us that God is sovereign in his timing. That God is sovereign in his timing. This was not a good time for Israel. Long gone are the days of David and Solomon, which Israel ruled in all of her splendor and was a, a great nation with wealth and military power and respectability among the world world's elite. No now they are just uh, another state of Rome, another uh, subservient to the to the Caesar himself to Caesar Augustus, subservient to what His will is and what His desires are. They have no king of their own. Year after year, decade after decade, they would gather at the Jewish feasts and they would read as we have read today Isaiah 11 or Isaiah 9 or any number of prophetic texts from the old covenant promising the Messiah and with vividness and passion and longing hearts, they would long for the Messiah that was to come. But He never came. They waited, and they waited, and they anticipated, and they anticipated, and they longed, and they longed. And now uh, an angel goes to a little lady, a little girl in most people's eyes, living in this city in Galilee called Nazareth. An angel goes to her and says, you're going to give birth to Emmanuel, God with us. You're going to give birth to the child that was promised in Isaiah 9. You're going to give birth now? 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 To her? There? Really? This is the king? This is the Messiah? This is the one? The timing seems strange at best. The timing seems ill-advised to practically any scholar that would have been there that day. None of it would have made sense to them. Perhaps least of all to Mary... I want you to think about Mary here for a second. This is particularly vivid to me because most likely, when we come to Luke chapter 2, Mary is at least eight months pregnant. Guess what? I got living in my house this cute little, beautiful, nine month pregnant wife. I know what Joseph's going through right here. I'm living in Joseph's world. Going through that's the wrong word. That is what he is joyously experiencing. That's what I meant to say. (laughs) But think about this. Caesar issues a a decree that there's going to be a census. The census was so that he might know the amount of wealth that he would have so that he could build the cities that he would want to have and then the number of soldiers that he could potentially enlist in his army and expand the empire. And so you have sweet little Mary... Poor, poor Mary. And the, the decree comes out, and Joseph looks at her and says, uh, "Mary, like I know this isn't a good time at all, and like I know you're kind of just you know getting the house ready for the baby, and I know that you're excited about the baby, and we're kind of still dealing with the rumors on the streets that yeah, a virgin is giving birth, right? Like we're still dealing with all of that, but I need I need to throw something else at you." We've got to go to Bethlehem. 90-mile journey, the shortest way you could go. At least, at least a three-day's journey. And with a pregnant wife, you're not going in three days, brother. There's way too many bathroom stops for that. And so they're springing this on Mary. Mary. Most likely, she, an 8th month pregnant woman, has to load up on the back of a mule and be led by Joseph on this perilous journey to the city of David, where his clan is from, where, where his people are. Can't you imagine where Mary's mind goes while she's on the back of that mule? Can't you imagine? The angel had come to Mary, and he had said, you are the favored one. Do you think she felt favored on the back of the mule? Pregnant? The angel had come to her and had said, you are going to give uh, give birth to the son of the highest. I'm going to a city. I don't even know if there's a bed there. The timing isn't right. The timing doesn't make sense. Can you imagine how uncomfortable her ride was? Megan is struggling. We got a, a 70 mile ride to Birmingham in an F 150. Imagine a 90 mile ride on a mule. They get there. There's no room for them in the end. But verse six, I think, is telling us listen to what verse six says. Turn with, turn with me. Oh, never mind. We didn't turn away. <laughs> verse six. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. The time came. You can imagine Joseph. Joseph's a nervous wreck. Mary probably overexerted from the arduous journey that has been, probably having overdone it and trying to get there and get to Bethlehem so that she could rest, is induced into some type of surprising labor that she didn't anticipate at a time that she wasn't ready for. The, the crib's not there. The, the, the bring home gown, not there. The diapers and the wipes, not there. So they end up in a manger, in a room filled with hay. Perhaps animals gathered around watching as the Son of God is born into the earth. I wonder how many of you feel like Mary this morning. I wonder how many of you feel like Mary on the back of the mule. You're doing the very best you can to bring God glory with your life. You're doing the very best you can to bring him honor with your life. But it's like the timing of your life is just not working out. It's like the timing of your life is just not fitting together. You're going to gather around your Christmas table and the thought that you're going to have is, why did she have to die this year? You're going to look at the tree and it's going to be more barren than you wish. And you're going to think, why did I have to take a pay cut this year? You're going to think about the child that is not there. And you're going to think, why can't I buy presents for them this year? Much of life is spent on a 90 mile journey on the back of a mule, isn't it? Even for the people of God. But you see, God was spectacularly, beautifully, brilliantly on time. You see, 500 years earlier in Micah, God had prophesied through his prophet Micah that the son would be born in the town of David, in the city of David, which was Bethlehem. Had a census not went out from a pagan king, Caesar, Jesus would have been born in Nazareth of Galilee. But because God issued through Caesar the right decree at the right time for the right census, He moves the Son of God from Nazareth of Galilee to the city of David, Bethlehem, to which, to where Jesus is born. It seemed ill-timed to Mary. It seemed nonsensical to anybody that was watching. But God was brilliantly on time. You see, Jesus' advent teaches us that we can trust the timing of God. Jesus' advent teaches us that we can trust the timing of God. I don't know why you're going through what you're going through right now as you're going through it. I don't know why you look in the mirror and experience the pain that you're experiencing right now. I don't know why you've got to gather around the Christmas table with chairs empty and people missing this year but I know that you can trust in the timing of the Lord. Some of you are waiting for the man that you're going to be able to celebrate and build a family with. I don't know why he's not here yet, but I know you can trust in the timing of the Lord. Some of you are waiting for the child to buy gifts for. I don't know why you don't have the child yet, but I'm telling you, trust in the timing of God because God does his greatest works on the backs of mules. God does works that we can't see and we can't expect in ways that we can never expect them so that he might pour his glory out uniquely. This morning, trust in the sovereign timing of God. God not only controls the future, he controls every organized event that leads to the future. Rest in that this morning, brothers and sisters. Rest in that. Not only does Jesus' advent prove to us the sovereignty of God, but Jesus' advent proves to us that God accomplishes his sovereign will through people. That God accomplishes his sovereign will through people. Think about our text. There's two completely different groups of people in our text, right? First, we have Caesar, the ruler, the most powerful man in the world, essentially a deity. In the grand scheme of things, at his beck and command, every civilization on earth that existed had to move and to operate. And then you have Mary and Joseph. And what I want you to see is that through both groups of people, through both types of people, God is working. God is carrying out his sovereign will. God is accomplishing his sovereign purpose. First, let's think about Caesar. Caesar Augustus is issuing this decree because why? He wants to spread his own glory. He's issuing this decree, he's issuing the census, he's he's forcing people to go to their hometowns and to register and to pay taxes because he wants a bigger army so that he can conquer more nations. Because he wants uh, more money in the treasury so that he can build bigger buildings and people talk about how wonderful and how great and how mighty he is. Caesar believes that he is in control. But brothers and sisters, it makes no matter whether you acknowledge Jesus as Lord or not. He is your Lord. And he is working. And he is moving. And he is organizing. You see... Caesar would have never admitted it, and Caesar would have never acknowledged it, and Caesar would have never understood it, but Caesar was a servant of God. Caesar was a servant of God the same way Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon was a servant of God. Caesar didn't bow down to God, but Caesar accomplished the will of God. If Caesar had not issued the census, the will of God would have not been fulfilled. He did it for for wicked, evil self-interest. God was working through his wicked, evil self-interest for his glory. Do you see this? That which Caesar thought he was in control of. God was manipulating all along. That God, like like a a master, like a grand maestro, was organizing the orchestra so that all of the parts came together at the right time to harmonize. See, the irony is is that Caesar was trying to spread his glory and all the while spreading the glory of God. You see, Jesus' advent proves to us that God takes men that are evil men with evil intentions and evil desires and uses them to accomplish his good and perfect will. It has happened throughout history and it will happen throughout the future until Jesus comes. That God will work through evil men with evil intentions and evil desires and evil governments and oppressive people to accomplish his good and perfect will. Brothers and sisters, Jesus' advent means that evil does not win. Evil does not win. Congress does not stay in control. The president does not remain in control. Evil dictators do not remain in control. Emperors come and go. But every single one of them, whether they acknowledge it or not, whether they will bow down or not, must say they are a servant of God Almighty. Because God is carrying out his will through them, whether they realize it or not. You don't have to be afraid of what's happening in our country. You don't have to be afraid of what's happening in our world. Not one of them are beyond the foresight of God. Not one of them are beyond the predestination of God as we talked about last week. Not one of them are beyond the thought of God, the mind of God, the power of God, the ability of God. No, God is taking all of them and he is bringing them together for a grand harmony in which his son will ultimately come in the middle of as a crescendo. But not only do we see God working through the evil and the wicked, We also see God working through the lowly and the faithful, don't we? As glorious as Caesar is, as extravagantly wealthy as Caesar was, as perfectly equipped as Caesar was, Mary and Joseph are the opposite in every way. In every understandable way, Mary and Joseph are the polar and entire opposite of who Caesar Augustus is. They don't have, have money. They they don't they don't even have they don't have caravans to take them from place to place. Now let me ask, if you're God if you're writing the story which of the two are you gonna let your son be born into? Caesar makes sense. We'll, we'll send him into Caesar. Caesar and then through Caesar's household Jesus will come and he will lead this great top down revival. But it's not through Caesar that Jesus comes. It's through the lowly Mary and the lowly Joseph. See, Jesus had told us that he came to serve, not to be served. And so wouldn't it make sense that God would have him born in the house of his servants? Wouldn't it make sense that God would have the the Savior that would humble himself, the Savior that would humiliate himself, be born into the humblest of households to people that loved him? No, they didn't have any extravagant riches to offer. They didn't have extraordinary gifts to offer. All they had was their, themselves. All they had was their lives and the favor of God. And God used them to change the world. God used them to change the world. God used the lowly Mary and the lowly Joseph to come together and to change the world and the upbringing of his son through which whom he would deliver the world. You see, Jesus' advent proves that God is not looking for the extravagantly wealthy or the extraordinarily gifted to accomplish his will. God doesn't need your ability. God doesn't need your money. God doesn't need anything at all. No, by his good grace, by his good pleasure, he uses you, the lowly, the worthless, the resourceless people, to accomplish his world work. This means that Jesus' advent says that a rural church in Alabama can shake the nations. Jesus' advent is the reason that a hardly educated, 20-something-year-old guy can be a pastor at a church. Jesus' advent is the reason that every single one of us can come together for something that is bigger than us and better than us and greater than us. Because it's not about what we bring to the table. It's not about what we have. It's about what he brings and works through us. But God is pleased to work through the lowly. God is pleased to work through the, through the, through the servant's heart. This morning, would you just Pray. God, I don't have much to offer, but what I have, it's all yours. God, I don't know how to do very much, but everything that I know how to do, I want you to use it for your glory. God, I bring nothing to the table except my life, but my life, you have. You have it all. God, use me however you see fit to accomplish your will and change the world. So Jesus' advent proves to us The sovereignty of God. Jesus' advent proves to us that God accomplishes his sovereign work through people. And finally, Jesus' advent proves to us that he was fully human. That he was humbly a human. Think about what it's saying here. If Jesus, in the womb of a woman... This is God's son we're talking about. This is is God himself we're talking about. Growing in the womb of a woman. Philippians 2 says that he empties himself of all of the divine rights that he has as God. He empties himself of his omniscience. He empties himself of his omnipresence. He empties himself of his omnipotence. He had to be nurtured. Cared for. Loved and swaddled. He had to be potty trained. This is God we're talking about. How humiliating must that be for God? You see, if God would have come to earth in all of his majesty, surrounded by an army of fire-breathing angels who all proclaimed his glory around his throne all the time that he was on earth so that he might deliver us, it would have been the greatest act of love that we could have ever imagined. But the fact that God came and was born to a carpenter and his wife, placed in a hay-filled manger to be raised as a working-class man, is incomprehensible unfathomable, the most extreme story that any person could write of any God, but God came as a human. God came as a man, John Piper says, so that he might do what had to be done. God came as a man so that he could die the death, as a man, uh, uh, the death of a man being more than a man. Jesus' advent came, is, uh, happened because he wanted to experience your sorrow and to defeat it at the same time. Jesus became a human so that he might know your sorrow and at the same time defeat it. Some of you know what it's like to be betrayed, don't you? God knows that too. Some of you know what it's like to weep and to sob over the loss of a close friend. God knows that too. Some of you have had to bury a father. God knows that too. Some of you know what it's like to be hungry. God knows that too. When we pray, when we pour out our hearts, we can pour out our hearts with confidence. We can pour out our hearts boldly because we are bringing our sorrow to a sympathetic God. This morning, I know many of you are feeling the weight of great sorrow this Christmas season. You're feeling the weight of great sorrow. You're more depressed than you are filled with joy. You're more lonely than you are filled with company. There's more dread in you than there is anticipation and excitement. And you will be relieved when it's all over and finished. You're filled with sorrow. Perhaps there's a husband that has passed away or a wife that's not there anymore. A son that won't even call you that day, that's in the throes of rebellion. Or a daughter that should be there but has passed on to another life. Whatever your sorrow is, I want you to know that Jesus sympathizes. And Jesus knows it. And Jesus came To know that sorrow so that you wouldn't have to know it forever. Whatever sorrow you have this morning, whatever sorrow you're carrying this Christmas, know that sorrow will not last forever. One day, the Almighty will wipe the tears from your face. One day, the Almighty will pull you up against His chest. One day the Almighty will fill you with joy and the Almighty will fill you with comfort and the Almighty will give you the the company that you long for. One day all of this is going to melt away. One day all of this is going to fade away because God became a human to know human sorrow and at the same time to defeat it. Jesus defeated your pain. Jesus defeated your sorrow. And all of you that are his children that will one day be at his table will know it no more. morning, I don't know how you would have written the story of redemption, but praise God he wrote it differently than you would have written it. Praise God he wrote it so that he would come as a lowly human to the lowly earth to die a sinner's death so that our death, our sorrow might be defeated and we might be resurrected. Let me pray for us this morning. Heavenly Father, we long for Jesus to come back.